Well, my welcome to you all this morning, and uh, thank you for uh, choosing to join here today. And uh, I don't want to be remiss and and uh, fail to mention that uh, Don and Bev are back here with us, and, and that's a delight. And good to see the Ashalu family here. We pray for you, Doctor, as you have worked so extensively for our community, and uh, great to see so many of you. Uh, nice to that more more people are filtering in after the uh, uh, effects of our restrictions. Welcome to each one of you visiting. Welcome to those of you who have uh, joined us online, and uh, and I know a number of families that are holidaying at this time and heard from them, and uh, uh, I pray, as we always pray, that they would take time throughout the Lord's Day to also worship Him and uh, spend time uh, in reflection on the, uh, the truth of the gospel and the resurrection. You have a Bible with you. I hope you do. I invite you to turn to the Gospel of John. <clears throat> the Gospel of John. Um, <clears throat> again, if you're visiting, we've been uh, spending a lot of time in this Gospel. We're nearing the end, and uh, this Gospel is often the first Gospel recommended to people who first come to Christ, who uh, first embrace him as savior and uh, there's a number of, uh, of uh, wonderful things to be gleaned from this gospel but the aim primarily of the author was to re write a a selective history of Jesus Christ on his ministry and his death to be read by people who are not Christians in that they would be convinced through uh, his writing and obviously the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is in fact the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we are, uh, as I said, approaching the end and we're in chapter 20. And... <clears throat> We've been talking about the resurrection, and possibly you feel, as I do, that we become so used to dealing with the topic of the resurrection at Easter time that it almost seems like it doesn't fit well at other times of the year. And I hope that even what we've been doing will encourage you that the resurrection, although takes prominence in our thinking at Easter is a time when is a topic that we ought to focus on much and regularly. We've learned up to date and primarily through the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're referred to as the synoptic gospels in that uh, they were written closer to the time of Christ, and there is a similarity 
between these three Gospels. We've learned that the body of Jesus has been placed in a grave, and actually God caused an earthquake. An angel came and rolled back the stone. And then we're told that uh, three ladies got up early on the first day of the week, which is our Sunday, and went to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. These three ladies were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, she would be the aunt of Jesus, and Salome. And they came with spices and they, they approached the tomb and they found that the tomb was empty. And they met an angel at the tomb and the angel told them that Jesus had indeed been raised. And the women react with fear and joy, that mixture. Um, but one of the mysteries that you'll hear today in the message, uh, and, the, and it's, it, it, it's, it's my mystery too. I, I, I tried to resolve this by reading as much as I can. These ladies went and an angel told them that Jesus wasn't there, he was risen, and yet it, it somehow it didn't sink in. And there's no explanation for that. It, it somehow did not resonate. <clears throat> they went back, and particularly Mary told Peter and John that the tomb was empty. And Peter and John ran to the tomb to see if that was so. And the way the linen was laid out in the tomb, John, at least himself, was absolutely convinced that Jesus had risen. It was as if the body of Christ had dematerialized, come through the claws. Everything was laid out just as it would have been if the body was there in one second and one second later it was gone. And John was convinced, at least the author of this gospel, that Jesus had risen from the dead based on that. And then they all go back to their homes. That's another mystery that I have. And I I can't give you an answer for it. Like, <laughs> having witnessed and being uh, involved in, in, in these events, um, just for John to write in, 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 all, in a matter-of-fact kind of way, and they went back to their homes. Um, interesting. I think one of the realities why John writes this way is to convince his readers that this isn't a fairy tale made up. There's a reality to the, to the reporting that is uh, quite clear. And then when the disciples went back to their home, the, again, the mystery of Mary Magdalene appears again. She goes back to the tomb all by herself. She returns to the tomb all by herself, and none of the authors tell us why. The synoptics do tell us that during this time frame, early on Sunday morning, the chief priests had attempted to, uh, to formulate a cover-up plan because it became obvious the body of Jesus 
had been, was removed from the tomb. It wasn't there. And so the chief priests had tried to, tried to pass the word that his disciples had stolen the body. But as John records, that wasn't true. John is going to focus today in our reading and in our discussion on this lady, Mary Magdalene, who goes back alone to the tomb. Mary was a follower, a disciple of Jesus, and she was a colleague, in a sense, a supporter of Jesus. As you read the Gospels, you'll often read that Jesus went around, and a group of ladies were always with him, supporting him. And we can imagine what kind of support that is through, through uh, meals and other things that were provided for his ministry. And Mary Magdalene was one of those ladies. Uh, she was a woman that had been healed by Jesus in Luke chapter 8. She was a woman that uh, was demonically oppressed, and Jesus freed her from that satanic control, and she became a follower of Christ. Of course, a number of years ago, made famous by Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, there was this uh, lie that was promulgated through the, through the Da Vinci Code and is also held in some of what we call the Gnostic Gospels. These are not true Gospels. They're false Gospels uh, that Mary Magdalene was the wife of Jesus. That is, in fact, a lie. Mary was a devoted follower of Jesus, period. She was a devoted follower of Jesus, period. So if you have your Bibles open to John's Gospel, chapter 20, I'm going to be reading verses 11 through to 18. John's Gospel 20, 11 through to 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, 
Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. To recap this story, I want some points that you should remember. As Mary went back to the tomb and and was standing there, she saw these angels. The angels asked her the question, why are you weeping? It's a good question for the angels to ask because she had already been told, and as I said, there's, somehow it didn't resonate with her that the fact that Jesus had been risen from the dead. And they asked why she is weeping, and she gave the answer. She says, well, I'm weeping because I don't know where they've laid the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. She sent someone near her. We, we do that, don't we? We can be in a place where we just sense someone is coming up behind us or someone is beside us. And she sent someone there. And again, this person said to her, why are you weeping? And she gave the same answer. I don't know where they've laid the body of Jesus. She goes on to say, sir, if, if you, being the gardener, maybe the gardener had done something with the body of Christ, if you've done something, then maybe please tell me because I want to care for the body of Jesus. And in the most tenderest and the most intimate of responses, Jesus just said, Mary. Now, I don't know how he said it. We don't know how he said it. But if you can imagine a husband or a wife, a father, a mother, a child, saying the name of someone they love most dearly, most affectionately, most intimately, I think we'd be close to how Jesus said her name, Mary. Interesting, she missed the significance of the empty tomb. This would be her second time back at the tomb. She missed the significance of the empty tomb. She missed the significance of angels speaking to her and telling her, he is not here, he is risen. But she did not miss the significance of her name being mentioned from the lips of Jesus Christ. She did not miss the voice of her Savior. One, one commentator says it so well. Only one thing was necessary to establish Jesus' identity, his uttering of her name. One of the strange commonplaces of life is that the most penetrating utterance one can understand 
no matter by whom spoken is his personal name. Furthermore, the way it is spoken often identifies the speaker. You've had that experience, I'm sure. Someone you can't see, someone you haven't seen for a long time, someone totally unexpected, perhaps in a crowd, perhaps on a phone, says just your name, and you know exactly who it is. How often Mary must have heard Jesus say her name. How often she must have heard that. We will read later in this story that Jesus accompanied two disciples on the road to Emmaus and they didn't have a clue it was Jesus. But when they gathered together in a room and they broke bread together and they heard Jesus pray, they knew who it was. Dr. Carson says, whatever the cause of her blindness, like we don't understand why she was blind to these truths, whatever the cause of her blindness, the single word Mary, spoken as Jesus had always uttered it, was enough to remove it. And then he adds these words, anguish and despair are instantly swallowed up by astonishment and delight. As I have on several occasions, I wonder about the eschatological implications of this. And I know I'm, 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 I'm guessing. But I can't help but think of people who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior who in time fall asleep for the last time. And they hear their name. I will arise when he calls my name. Isn't that a balm to your soul this morning? Mary. Rabboni. It's all the proof I needed is to hear my name on the lips of my Savior. Then Jesus says to her, don't cling to me. I have not ascended to my Father now, without getting into all the argumentation and, and, and issues, I need to say to you that, that every expositor I consulted says this verse in the Bible ranks as one of the most difficult verses in the Bible. The verse starts off, 
in the ESV by saying, do not cling to me. The King James Version says, touch me not. The other translations are similar to the ESV. Do not hold on to me, or uh, the NIV says, or the NASB, stop clinging to me, which is probably more accurate. I grew up at a time, of course, with the old authorized version where I remember being taught that what is Jesus is saying here is that there's something different about my glorified body that you can't touch. And that's what I was taught. I don't know what you were taught, but that was based on the old reading of the King James, which is based on less reliable manuscripts. The more modern manuscripts give the intonation that what Jesus is saying, stop holding me. Again, the highly respected expositor, Dr. Don Carson, says the essence is, stop clinging to me, but go tell my disciples. Do you get the idea? If you come up with the idea, well, that Mary wasn't allowed to touch the body of Jesus, well, just uh, within 48 hours, Jesus is going to say to Thomas, touch me. So that, that, that doesn't work. <laughs> you, that just doesn't work. So the, I prefer to offer as an understanding what Jesus is saying is, you're hanging on to me. Stop. I got a job for you to do. I'm heading back to my father, and I'm going to comment on that in a minute. But you have a job to do. Go tell my brothers. We could, stay, we could stand here all day clinging to one another. That's not what I want you to do. I want you to go tell my brothers. Mary has a job to do. She becomes the first preacher of the resurrection, if you stop and think about it. She's the first one to be commissioned by Jesus Christ. Go tell my brothers. I'm going back to my father. Go tell them I'm alive. Verse 18 says, and we read this, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples. Not only was she the first commissioned to carry the message of the resurrection, she was obedient in what she did. She immediately went and told the disciples that Jesus was alive. Would you look back again at your scriptures? Look carefully at these words that are going to focus, we're going to focus on. Notice verse 17 again. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. This ought to ring, this ought to ring messages of the new covenant in your mind. Remember I said that at the cross, Jesus established the new covenant. 
new covenant with those who believed. And, and instead of saying, I'm going back to my father, he said, I'm going back to my father, who is your father. I'm going back to my God, which is your God. Then he says, go to my brothers and say to them. Now, if you, if you took that one verse out of context and read it, you would think he's telling Mary to go inform his biological brothers. Go to my brothers and say to them, and then it says in verse 18, Mary went and announced to the disciples. You see what Jesus is doing here? You see this new covenant relationship that he's speaking of almost matter-of-factly. I'm going back to my God, who's your God. I'm going back to my Father, who's your Father. Now you go tell my brothers who are my disciples. A brother spiritually of Jesus is a disciple of Jesus, and a disciple of Jesus is a brother of Jesus. And if a disciple is a brother of Jesus, then we are part of a family. Do you see what Jesus is painting for Mary? That something relationally has changed since the cross. My point is that Jesus is using the term disciple and brother synonymously. I would say that you cannot be a disciple of Jesus unless you are spiritually a brother of Jesus in his family. God is your father. And if God is your father, then I'm your brother and Christ is your brother. We're in a family. There's two things I want to close with now that I've tried to explain the story. I have two applications. One is I'm calling a contextual application by meaning contextual in the sense that this is how the original author wanted us to apply the text. But there's also a theological application, one that I want you to see in this text that will encourage your hearts this morning. First of all, the contextual application. What is it that John wanted his readers to get from this text? Why did John take from the story of Jesus, he was the only author to do it, the fact that Mary Magdalene was the first evangelist to proclaim the resurrection and to be a witness of his risen body? Why did John do that? Why is that significant? And again, I'm thinking in terms of the original readers. Why would this be important for the original readers 
to know. For help, I'm referring to a guy by the name of Dr. Mike Lacona, L-I-C-O-N-A. Mike Lacona is a supreme New Testament scholar. If you want to check out some of his material, you can look. He has a website called risenjesus.com. He is just absolutely a profound theologian in regard to the original manuscripts and the manuscripts that relate to the resurrection of Christ and to the history of the resurrection of Christ. He is often found in debates with skeptics. One of the recent ones I listened to some years ago was he debated with the skeptic Bart Ehrman, who has become uh, infamous in trying to debunk the Gospels. And Mike Lacona debated with him for over an hour on this, these topics, and that's available too online. But he says something interesting about this account that I think we should listen to. He writes, the main argument posited for the historicity of the appearance of the women and the empty tomb for that matter is that early Christians would not have invented the story since the low view of women in first century Mediterranean society would raise a problem of credibility. Let me paraphrase. When Lacona, who is an expert in the, in the type of literature and the culture of this day, says that if John was trying to present a case to convince someone that Jesus rose from the dead, and if John was being unscrupulous in his writing, he would have never chosen a woman to be the first evangelist. That's the point Lacona is making. I believe it's a valid point. He goes on to say, there's evidence in the Greco-Roman world that Educated men regarded women as gullible in religious matters and especially prone to superstitious fantasies and excessive religious practices. And a number of Jewish sources indicated the low view of women in Jewish culture that he could also cite. See, do you understand what Lacona is saying? He's, he's saying that if I was going to fabricate a story about Jesus to try to convince someone that he's risen from the dead, in my fabrication of the story, I would have never, ever employed a character that was a female to be the primary witness because the men would have laughed her out of court. And rather than deceive the reader... John is providing an accurate account so that people who read this story would be convinced this has to be true. He would never in his right mind have used this if he was just trying to fabricate a fable. 
Well, you say to me, Pastor Jim, that's really great. You quote Mike Lacona. Is that really the way men treated women? Please turn in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. And we're going to read what actually happened. Forget about Dr. Lacona for a minute. We're going to read what actually happened. Are you there? Luke 24, verse 10. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Now watch verse 11. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Wow. God ordained a group of women to be the first witnesses of the resurrection. He sent Mary back to the apostles, the friends, the brothers, to tell them the good news that he's risen from the dead And how did they treat her? This is an idle tale. (laughs) I don't believe you. This was the attitude of the day. And so, again, back to the contextual point of why John would present this as a primary document to support the resurrection of Christ. He includes the true story that it was women that Jesus appointed to carry this good news. And if this story was a mere fabrication, of course he would never have done that. But he did. And if I was a a Jewish man in Asia Minor, having received the Gospel of John, and I read that the primary witnesses that Jesus uses are women, I would go, whoa. That's something to think about. That's something to think about. There is also a theological application for you and I this morning. In the Gospel of John, as we have studied it and read it, we have been taken through the identification and the transformation of several types of relationships that the Christian can have with Christ. Back in John 15, Jesus said to his disciples, I no longer call you slaves. I call you, remember, friends. I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. And now in John 20, we have an added element that defines our relationship with Jesus. We are not only disciples, we are family. We're not only learners and followers of Jesus, we are kin. 
We are brothers and sisters. We're related to him in family. Paul's going to affirm in his writing so many times, and as was read for us in, in, the, in Galatians and again in Romans, that when a person comes to Christ and turns from their sin and embraces faith in Jesus Christ, they are translated as sinners and they're moved into a position as heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. God becomes our father, Jesus becomes our elder brother, and we all become part of this adopted family of the Lord Jesus Christ. John's whole point in writing this is to convey what a Christian is. Sometimes you may get that question where you are. Someone might ask you, well, what is a Christian? And we can see very clearly that John clarifies for us through this gospel what a Christian is. A Christian is a person who's a servant of Jesus Christ. But a Christian is also one who is a friend of Jesus Christ. A Christian is a person who is a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. But a Christian is also in the family of Jesus Christ, a brother a sister. How does one become part of the family of God? How does one become a brother, a sister to Jesus? Well, John makes the point in his very first chapter on how that's accomplished. He says, in verse 12 of chapter 1, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. If you're here this morning or you're listening online and you're saying, Jim, you're talking about these different relationships with God, relationships of a servant, a disciple, a friend, a family member, how can I become part of that? John has already given us the answer, and I commend the answer to you. For everyone who receives him, who believes in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. I think it was John Piper who said, if I remember right, hearing years ago, when you, when you hear the invitation to receive Christ, there is a question you must answer. If I were to ask you this morning, did you receive Jesus as your Savior? And you said yes. The next question I must ask you is, what did you receive? What did you receive? Did you receive a good moral teacher? 
Did you receive a good example of how to live life? Did you receive a person who uh, was mistreated by society, a martyr? Or did you receive someone who is your master because you're a servant? Did you receive someone you can have an intimate relationship, a personal relationship because he's your friend? Did you receive the master teacher who guides your life, who instructs you how to live, who determines the choices you make? And did you receive your elder brother one in whom you've been adopted into his family and one whom you will live with forever because his God is your God and his Father is your Father. Beloved, this morning as I gaze over the congregation, as I consider the nameless people who are watching online, I want to ask you the question, When you received Christ as your Savior, whom did you receive? Whom did you receive? Did you receive your Lord and friend? Did you receive your teacher and your elder brother? Whom did you receive when you received Christ? John said, to as many as received him, To those who have believed in his name, he gives the right. He gives you the authority to become children of God. That's how you become a Christian. You receive Christ as your Savior and put your faith in him. And if you're here this morning or listening online and you've never done that, I would plead with you to do that this morning. I would plead with you to repent and turn from your sin, your rebellion against God, your desire to live life your way, your idolatry, placing yourself as more important than God. I plead with you to repent and turn from your sin. And I plead with you to put your faith in the one who loved you and died for your sin and gave his life for you that you might have eternal life. Receive him and believe him today. Would you join me as we pray? Thank you, Father, for this tender and intimate account of your son speaking to Mary. Now I pray, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit and in accordance with your sovereign will, will you speak to someone this morning in their minds and hearts would you call their name in love and kindness will you draw them
May they put their entire trust in what you have said and what you have done. And to all who have, may we be encouraged this morning that your God is our God, that your Father is our Father. And we have been immersed into a, a body of brothers and sisters that is indissolvable, that is eternal, and can never be changed. I pray that we would leave this place this morning with a greater love and affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that we would leave with a greater awe that you would not only save us, but that you would bring us into your family. May it change how we do life the rest of this day and this week. May it transform our thinking. May it give us hope and encouragement. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and hear God's benediction in your life and my life today. Brothers and sisters, may I commend to you God and the word of his grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with the saints. God bless you and have a good week.